0: probably my most special guest with me today. He is a national law enforcement trainer, an author, a consultant, somebody known to the law enforcement community as J.D. Buck Savage. Welcome to the show, Dave Smith.
1: Thank you, Betsy. Great to be here. Great to talk to you today and great to be on the, uh, the, the National Police Association Report
0: Okay, so I, Dave, I have to tell our audience that uh, in addition to being uh, my good friend and my mentor, you're my husband, and, uh, but you have been involved in the law enforcement profession um, for the last uh, 40 years. And I first heard you speak many, many years ago, um, and you have since been on the cutting edge of training and other issues in our profession.
1: Right. You know, 46 years ago, I graduated from the University of Arizona and started working for the Tucson Police Department. And that was a great adventure for me. But then I went on to the state police, uh, Arizona Department of Public Safety. And it was great because in that uh, agency, I was able to, I had a lot of great adventures. One of the great things I was able to do was that when I got into training, I was able to start creating a humorous officer safety program, an officer information program, but to use humor. And uh, that was 1980. That's how long ago that was. Uh, and then next thing I know, I'm teaching and training throughout the United States. And I've been doing that since 1983 at a national level. So I'm, I, I've i been actively involved in law enforcement and law enforcement training and the video production side of law enforcement. I've have had so many great opportunities because of that. You know, I've been shot with everything from the original prototypes of simulation to doing the original... Uh, uh, shooting simulating machines when they're being developed, and and I've seen law enforcement absolutely evolve over the last 40 years, especially intensely, and that's why it's a, this is a very important time now, and it's very important for us to talk about the things I think that society needs to, to really be mature about it when it comes to law enforcement.
0: Well, and that's the thing, Dave, you were one of the first people to treat police officers like athletes and to look at their performance not only uh psychologically but physiologically as well and now that decision making by law enforcement officers is is at the forefront of so much of the discussion now um that becomes increasingly more and more important when we're looking at police officer uh decision making when we when we talk about deadly force right
1: Exactly. You know, law enforcement is a lot like any uh, high-level sports activity. You're going to make critical decisions under great stress, often under physical duress. And that's why way back when we started introducing a lot of important fitness ideas and mental aspects of preparation, everything from guided visualization uh, to autogenic breathing, which now law enforcement calls tactical breathing, uh, because this is the kind of thing, you know, so many of the controversies we see today are men and women under tremendous duress, law enforcement officers, in a moment of great valor, but also under great ambiguity. They never often know just how critical an incident they're in until they're suddenly fighting for their lives. The, the community, the politicians, the leaders need to appreciate that a little more because when you look at a video of some officer That officer has no idea if the person very often even videoing is a neutral or a hostile or or, or possibly even uh, somebody who may jump in to help them. They don't know ally or enemy or neutral. They never know. And that's why you see these these videos and you don't realize the officer's under tremendous stress. Remember, uh, they're the ones who truly have the skin in the game, and it really is their skin.
0: Well, absolutely, and, and we're now seeing police officers more than ever before just absolutely scrutinized and criticized and were told to do things like, you know, why, why didn't you taser him? Why did you have to shoot that guy with a knife? Um, you know, why, did, why couldn't you shoot the gun out of his hand or shoot him in the leg? <laughs> That's not what you train police officers to do, right, Dave?
1: Well, and that's one of the problems. You know, for instance, you're going to Roy Rogers, the guy, and shoot the gun out of his hand and then hit an innocent civilian three blocks away if you miss, which you very most likely will miss trying to shoot a gun out of their hand. See, again, the people who are making these criticisms are people who have never been under the duress of even firing a a, a real live plus P round or a law enforcement round through a handgun under any kind of stress. They If they have fired a gun, it's probably been in a very safe environment of a range somewhere and very often a weapon they get to take all the time in the world to line up their sights and fire. That law enforcement officer is drawing and firing often in a spontaneous moment and you have to remember the very rules almost for, for use of deadly force indicate that it's that officer's one of the thoughts past in that officer's mind is, oh, my God, I might die. Now, you don't see many people on a range with a thought like that. And that's what that officer face every time. And the problem is, again, uh, too many people are making judgments without understanding, look, you know, the taser is not 100% effective. And there are situations where you can't possibly deploy both effectively. And the other problem is, is even if you deploy a taser and if the subject is able to defeat it, which a lot of your gangbangers are practicing training nowadays, this is something we're seeing people coming out of the prisons ready and willing to face a taser, overcome it and continue an assault on the officer. So we have to be ready for our less lethal instruments to fail, but at the same time, we have to have time to deploy our deadly force when we're facing deadly force. And one of the things I want to make clear, too many people think deadly force is you've got to be facing a gun. No, deadly force is defined as that amount of force that cause serious bodily injury or death, serious bodily injury. Multiple assailants attacking you is deadly force. Uh, uh, someone striking your head with any object, including fists, can be deadly force. And these are the kind of things too often we're not taking into account. And and to our discredit, law enforcement authorities and experts have not constantly hammered these points. And that's one of the problems. The civilian community that criticizes us, they're criticizing us often completely devoid of any understanding what law enforcement does. When they critique something like community-oriented policing, we've been doing community-oriented policing since the 1970s, gang, and I mean full intensity. By the 1990s, it was a full-blown department in the government. You know, I can remember interviewing Chief uh, Brandt, Clinton's uh, uh, community-oriented policing cops uh, coordinator. And this is the thing. We have never stopped reaching out to communities. Communities have stopped reaching out to us, and politicians have aggravated it constantly at every point to create what is, in essence, a national crisis without anybody offering real solutions.
0: Well, and I think that's part of the problem. We're in this void where we keep talking about what the police need to do and what the police need to change, and yet we've stopped talking about what the community needs to do. We've stopped ta- addressing criminality. And in fact, some of the some of these progressive prosecutors out there are just are just saying we're not going to prosecute these crimes like resisting arrest, like uh, what happens during riots. And it's incredibly frustrating. I, I don't think just for law enforcement. I think it's it's frustrating for our citizens, don't you think?
1: It's, it's terribly frustrating. Number one, law enforcement is simply a reactive uh, arm of government. We don't go out too often and proactively arrest people. We don't. There's no Uh, You know, that's a great science fiction movie, but it's not true. We don't go out and arrest people before the crime. They have to commit the crime. So we're reactive. That's nature. And one of the things that's missing from this entire national dialogue, which is actually not a dialogue at all, but a lecture on people saying we need to have a dialogue on something, and then they proceed to tell you to shut up when you try to actually discuss it. But criminality is the key component here that has to be understood. Back in the old days, in the 70s, when criminology was a science and not a political agenda, you would study the fact that where is crime uh, created? At what point in 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 a person's cultural development do they tend toward criminality? And now we're not even allowed to describe it. We're not allowed to talk about it. We're not allowed to talk about the social conditions that create crime. Instead, we're just totally sold into the concept that somehow crime is a a friction between the have and the have nots, nonsensical things that any cop knows is not. It's just an infantilized or uh, immature view of the world. Criminality comes from a lot of things, a lot of motivations, partly because of the nature of mankind. And that's the only thing we're not allowed to talk about is the nature of evil. People can be evil. People can be misguided. In their, and one of the problems is, is quite frankly, when you talk about it, you've always talked about the urban crisis. Regardless of, of race, a person who's raised a, a poor in, a, in an urban setting uh, tends toward criminality. And you can sit there and you can go through all the reasons why, none of which you can talk about out loud anymore, because it has to be a, a certain party answer. You've got to answer it a certain way. Look, we're not going to solve problems, really, by getting any kind of effect on law enforcement. I can have all the community outreach programs uh, that you want, but if you're not educating those children, if you're teaching those children to believe that their life is helpless and that everybody, that the man controls their fate you 're not going to keep people from becoming criminals, you know it's a toxic mix you know I, all these programs well let's let 's do a high self esteem training for these kids well the, the American prison system's got the highest self esteem in the world and it 's our inmates. The problem is they 're not optimists. they have no sense of tomorrow no no hope actually. they live in the immediate now and very self self absorbed so that 's a literally a toxic mix for criminality
0: we seem to be uh, rapidly going toward a society where the police are expected to solve everyone's problems, and yet we have to do it with absolute nonviolence, total sensitivity to all groups. And now we're hearing that, first of all, we're hearing about defunding the police or reimagining policing these movements where we're hearing about sending in social workers to domestic disputes and uh, mental health issues. And that that's not only going to be a problem for uh, the police, it's really going to be a problem for the citizens. Is that correct?
1: Well, sure. The, you know, the people who always pay the price for these kind of utopian fantasies, uh, are especially are, the, are the, the, the the middle class and the lower middle class, the people who are trying to work their way up into the, uh, up into a, a proficient what we might call the American dream right? you 're depriving of that of them of that if you 're going to take away their safety and security number one if they 're not safe they 're not free they 're sitting there they 're literally prisoners in their own communities. Uh, and this is one of the problems, is that if you're going to make the police your scapegoat, the question simply becomes that who is going to come? Social workers? Well, eventually your social workers are going to have badges, guns, no defensive tactics, and then have to defend themselves with deadly force when the time comes. And we'll be calling them, oh yeah, police. And this is the kind of thing, that this, is, this, is a, this, is a, this is almost an evolutionary madness in the intellectual class where we're not talking about real issues. And there's very little empirical evidence that any of their ideas would actually work, but it's become so much dogma and there's so much penalty attached to contradicting that dogma that people, uh, very renowned academics and, and the people I think that uh, in the intellectual community that, that could offer up solutions don't or are totally disregarded because it doesn't match the, that, uh, that weird uh, uh, pseudoscience, the dogma, that we have today, and this is terrible because the people who are going to pay the price are going to be the people who are most uh, vulnerable in our community, and we all know who those are. And Yet the the people who claim to speak for them are the ones who are screaming the most uh, about Law enforcement, gang, law enforcement doesn't decide to shoot somebody, somebody decides to get shot by trying to shoot them or use deadly force on them or an innocent second person. And we have to defend ourselves or defend that other person. And that's the problem. People don't understand, no cop in America that I have ever heard of woke up this morning and said, hey, I think I'll go out and kill somebody, especially somebody of, of color, that's just ridiculous. Are there some racist cops? Yeah, sure there are. But if they manifest any of that racism, they get fired. The law enforcement in my whole career, 45 years now, we have constantly weeded out anybody who expressed or in any way demonstrated racist attitudes. I've been through hundreds of of cultural sensitivity classes and gender gender sensitivity classes. We've been doing this, yet that seems to be the local solution everywhere across the country. Now let's have another class on this or or that sensitivity issue. Well, they don't change behaviors because they're nonsense classes. They're based on weird, some universities, uh, philosophy or English department or psychology department or sociology departments. Uh, esoteric theory, which has nothing to do with reality. So I can take hours and hours of the class. They don't modify any behavior because they don't carry over into the real world.
0: Well, and I think so much of that is the people who develop these training curriculums that they think law enforcement ought to have, have never spent any time in a patrol car riding along with an officer. They haven't spent any time in a use of force simulator, seeing exactly how police officers make those decisions and how quickly things move and i think that if we could if we could get some of these academics and some of these people who want to retrain police officers to first of all first and foremost Figure out what it is that we do for a living. I think, for example, the city of Minneapolis is finding that out now. Now that they're, they're they have just this mass exodus of police officers, they can't even answer all the nine one one calls. They were gonna they voted to disband their police department, and yet now they're having to go out and try and find police officers from other communities. Uh, and other agencies to help their officers because they don't have enough police officers to do the, the, the filthy, dirty, sometimes sad work that police officers have to do.
1: Yeah, our primary job is dealing with victims, uh, and people who are in crisis, not dealing with criminals, and that's one of the people don't understand. If you actually spent a lot of time with law enforcement, you'd see that we're constantly giving, uh, con, you know, condolences or helping. Uh, we, you know, when we go to a burglary call, for instance, you have an elderly widow who's had all of her husband's possessions either stolen or broken by some burglars. Uh, she feels terribly violated. The law enforcement officer's job isn't just to take a report. It's not like Friday's, you know, just the facts, ma'am. It's also to show compassion to help that person start healing, feel safe and secure again, to get them with victim victim witness advocates that we work with all the time to help our communities heal. And that's one of the problems I see is, is that, you know, Minneapolis, for instance, is literally the classic example of utopian dreams gone bad. You know, you have a city council that once again lives in a fantasy world that criminality is created by laws. You know, the George Soros elected uh, prosecutors we see in this country that are deciding which laws they will enforce and they don't. Well, that's not, that's malfeasance or nonfeasance. It, At at best, it's a nonfeasance, but it's a malfeasance, I think. And it's time we start prosecuting these people under state laws about such a thing. When you're elected, you're part of the executive branch. You don't get to create laws, which means you don't get to abrogate or eliminate a law you don't like. And yet we're seeing that part of the chaos in these communities is that we're going to see people allowed to break laws, to do aggravated assaults, to do vandalisms. And they just turn their backs to them. They they call it a protest. A riot's not a protest. A riot's a riot. Whether a person's doing it for fun and profit or social change, it's still illegal. Now, if it's for social change, it's called terrorism and should have an additional charge attached. But until we get reality-based prosecutors back in these major urban centers, we're going to see this more and more. There's a reason the the the, the is so destructive to a civil society when you have a prosecutor that won't enforce the law, is that is the weak link in our criminal justice system. Law enforcement is gonna enforce the laws. That's why we're supposed to be really careful about the laws we pass in a republic, because they don't want the law enforcement, the community to become an oppressor. And then secondly, we count on judges, essentially to be the referees, the umpires, and how does the law compare to the subject's action, civil or criminal, and then they make decisions. But the prosecutor who chooses not to take a a case chooses then for to to ignore that law if they feel, you know, know, and again, we all have had our prosecutors forever and ever decide if a case could be won in court because part of their election, frankly, is the fact is they have a winning percentage or a losing percentage, and no prosecutor wants to go up for re-election with a losing percentage.
0: Absolutely. Now, one of the other things we're hearing when we talk about the defund the police movement, is that police officers need to only have certain kinds of training. And these movements want to eliminate warrior training, what they call warrior training. And now you are one of the foremost uh, police trainers in the country, and you actually do warrior training. Can you define what that is and then talk about what you actually teach police officers on how to keep themselves and their citizens safe?
1: You know, this is one of those things. This is kind of like the word racism. It's why like you, you keep thinking back to Eniko uh, Montoya turning and saying, "I don't think that word means what you think it means." You know, uh, uh, when I talk about warriors, I'm simply talking about the values of warriorship: duty, honor, loyalty, courage, strength, selflessness. You know, I mean, what's what's wrong with that? And when I ask people, "Okay, what is define warrior training?" and I never get a straight answer. Oh, it's training that dehumanizes people. Well, what is what? i never, nobody I know ever goes out and dehumanizes anyone. And, and when I hear people, well, you know, that uh, Colonel Dave Grossman has his science of killology. And my first question when I'm talking to reporters, have you read On Killing? Have you read his book, Stop Teaching Our Children to Kill? Or no, no, they never have. They have done no. Uh, Apparently, journalism now is is simply some science of catching the wave of some woke idea and just surfing on it without any intellectual exercise. But uh, warrior training doesn't exist that I know of. I've never met anyone who dehumanizes people. We, We, in fact, teach to protect people. But officer safety also includes a sense of awareness, attention patterns, controlling, as I said earlier, controlling ourselves under stress so we can perform at a high level and make those critical decisions properly. When to shoot somebody and when, the, when to hold fire is a very critical instant, and in the partly based mostly, I'll be honest with you, on the subject's actions. even They're incredibly ambiguous. Now the officer has to make that split second decision. And one of the problems in our society is, is that we, we've got to quit buying into vague generalities. It's, it's just not right. A social training where I'm going to teach you the proper pronoun, first ask somebody what their pronoun is. You know, that's, what, that's one of the things you, you see. It's so important now that we have these odd esoteric trainings that have nothing to do with dealing with people on the street. No, no agency was more progressive in this country than Minneapolis PD. Yet, none have been more abandoned. No no agency has been more abandoned and derided by its leadership Uh, And I don't mean just the political leaders, I mean, where were their leaders when the officers were out on the streets, just really not knowing if they were going to get out of a situation alive, being fired at, and the media has not covered any of this. Most people are listening to me now going, boy, she's exaggerating. I am not exaggerating. Talking to officers who are on the street those nights of the riots, uh, just tell you the facts, the horror of being shot at, and having no one be able to give them any response on how to respond being told to do absurd patrol movements where they're totally vulnerable in crowds of hundreds who are throwing rocks and bottles and firing fireworks at them, and yet they're being told to stand down. No allies are coming. Thank goodness the Minnesota State Police were sent in because they saved the day. And that's the thing is, is that, you know, what society do you want to live in? How do you want to live? How do you want to be? Do you want to be safe and secure in your homes and community? The law enforcement officers that revere and respect your rights. Which is why we say an oath to the Constitution of the United States, the single greatest protector of individual freedom that's ever been written, instead of our, our, our saying a Pledge of Allegiance to a person or any, anything else, or a party especially. And so we're coming to a point, I think, a great national crisis. And it's going to be interesting to see and uh, terrifying, I guess, to see what's going to happen over the next few years.
0: Uh, Dave, you have given us so much to, to think about. And I think you've given uh, given our audience a lot to really unpack when it comes to their support of American Law Enforcement. And we thank you for spending some time with us today. And if you would like more information about the National Police Association, visit us at nationalpolice.org.